0: Homes.com. We've done your homework.
1: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you remember a couple of weeks ago when the artist Banksy pulled that incredible prank on the entire auction world?
2: Yeah, that was when his painting just self-destructed in front of everyone. Wasn't it worth over a million dollars? It was actually $1.4
1: million. And the crazy part is they say it's probably worth even more now. And the person who had bid on it, you know, has agreed to pay that price.
2: That's crazy. I mean, I guess it does make it more unique, but it's still really weird how much people will pay for things.
1: No, it definitely is. And actually, I find this kind of thing fascinating. I mean, it's it's always interesting to see what people will pay big money for at auction. So I was recently looking at this list of the things people have bid on over the years that are related to the Titanic disaster. And one thing that went for even more than that Banksy painting is the violin played by William Hartley as the Titanic sank. Now, many of us have heard this legend before, and it's, of course, impossible to verify you know, every piece of it, but... The idea is that Hartley, who was the band leader, that he asked his seven musicians to keep playing as the ship was going down. Hmm. And so, some tell the story that he led his crew in playing Near My God to Thee. And, you know, that may not be completely true. It does appear that the musicians did maintain their composure and they continued playing something. What We don't know exactly what it was, but that violin that Hartley played sold back in 2013 for $1.7 million. Wow. And I guess it's really no surprise because, you know, more than 100 years after the tragic event, we're still fascinated by it. So today we'll try to better understand why that is, you know, and ask some of the questions like, what did people know about the Titanic before it set sail? What was life like on board? And what were some of the strange ways people chose to remember the ship after the disaster? So let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Ticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, wearing a button that just says, proud member of the Just Mystic Club. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but Tristan very nearly booked himself on a trip on the Titanic back in 1912. <laughs> Thankfully, the plan fell apart at the very last minute, you know, on account of his not having been born yet. So, ultimately, he missed the boat.
2: <laughs> Which is just such a lucky break. But, you know, Tristan isn't alone in telling tall tales about how he narrowly escaped death on the Titanic. In fact, just five days after the sinking, there were already press reports about the so-called Just mystic It Club and how it already had 6,904 members. And so <laughs> this was obviously tongue-in-cheek, but it was also kind of true. Like, a suspiciously large number of people had come forward claiming they'd missed the boat because they'd been running late that morning or they'd gotten sick or whatever whatever. whatever. But everyone knew most of the stories were completely made up. Like in one of the press reports I mentioned, they had a sarcastic quote from a guy who said, quote, I count it lucky that I didn't have the money to go abroad this year. If all of us who just missed it had got aboard the Titanic, she would have sunk at the Liverpool dock from the overload.
1: (laughs) I'm glad the public didn't fall for all these stories. I mean, it's such a strange compulsion in the first place, you know, to lie like that because I don't know, because you want to attach yourself to a tragedy, but Uh I guess that goes to show how captivated people were by the story of the Titanic. And the really amazing thing is that more than 100 years later, many of us are still just as captivated. So at this point, the disaster, it feels like it's taken on kind of a mythical status in world culture, and it's become one of those stories that everybody seems to know. In fact, I read in Smithsonian that Titanic is actually the third most recognized word in the world, huh. just below God and Coca-Cola. And you know, while it's true that interest in the story has ebbed and flowed over time, it's still something that we always seem to come back to. So today, we'll take a look at why that is and why Titanic still fascinates us all these years later and help answer that. We'll talk about the impact the tragedies had on the world, both in the short term and the long term. And... We'll also dig a little deeper into life aboard the ship which, you know, includes the surprising stories of a few standout passengers. It's definitely a lot to cover, so let's get to it. But but where do you want to start, Mango?
2: Well, I thought we could start with one of the biggest reasons that people have stayed invested in the Titanic, and that's just the ship itself. So most of us know that at the time, it was the largest ocean liner ever constructed, and more broadly, the largest man-made moving object in the world. It was about 880 feet long and 175 feet tall, which means the ship was as long as three football fields and as tall as a 17-story building. Isn't that insane?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a massive ship for its time, no question about that, but It wouldn't really be that impressive today, though, right? I mean, we have cruise ships that are more than four times that size now. So it does make me wonder, like, why the size of the Titanic still captures people's interest.
2: So I think it's partly the perception that the Titanic was kind of tempting fate in a way. Like, the fact that the ship held that title as the world's largest and and then it ended up sinking on its maiden voyage— It feels like this cautionary tale about man's hubris in some people's minds. Like, it's almost like a a Tower of Babel situation or something where mankind overreached and then was made to suffer for it. And I think that still resonates for people, especially since we've heard so many stories now about how luxurious and decadent the ship was, especially compared to others at the time. All right. Well, before we get to that
1: fateful night with the iceberg, I I do want to spend a little more time on board and, and talk about a few of those decadent details that you alluded to. So, for example, the Titanic was one of the first ships to have electric lights in all of its rooms. It also had way more amenities than most other ships. And so just looking at the list here, among those were four elevators, a heated swimming pool, two libraries, two barbershops, a squash court, a Turkish (laughs) bath, and even its on-board newspaper called the Atlantic Daily Bulletin.
2: So I hadn't heard about the paper. I'm guessing that means that they had a printing press on board?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a small print shop on the D deck. And and of course, this was close to the butcher shop, in case you were wondering.
2: (laughs) Now I know where I'd get my pastrami on the Titanic. But I mean, it really does feel like they thought about everything. My favorite Titanic amenity, though, is probably the onboard gymnasium. Like, it had All the best equipment, naturally, including old standards like rowing machines, weights, punching bags. But it also had this cutting edge gear. Like they had uh, two static bicycles with two foot dials attached to show the distance that had been traveled. And there were also a few electric horses, which were these big mechanical saddles meant to mimic riding a horse.
1: I mean, does that even count as exercise? It it kind of feels like it would be less of a workout for the rider
2: than for the horse or, or I guess, the <laughs> saddle in this case. I mean, I, I think it was supposed to strengthen your core or maybe some leg muscles. But <laughs> either way, I, I doubt any of the passengers worked up that much of a sweat. Like, if you look at pictures from floating gyms on the Titanic and other ships of the era— most of the passengers are exercising while they're wearing their full get-up. So it's like a, a bunch of really sedate and calm-looking people in these three-piece suits or or like big Edwardian dresses and hats, and they're just kind of half-heartedly peddling on the bikes or whatever. It's, it's pretty lazy-looking.
1: Yeah, I've actually seen some of these pictures, and honestly, my guess is that it's the first time in a gym for most of them because
2: nobody looks like they know what they're doing at all. I mean, it's a good thing that they had a personal trainer on board the Titanic. This is real. His name was Thomas McCauley, and it was this guy's job to show passengers how to use the equipment and even to provide one-on-one training sessions. And it seems like McCauley took his job super seriously because the night the ship sank, he actually chose to stay at his post in the gym and go down with the ship.
1: Wait, seriously? I mean, I I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but that sort of seems a little bit unnecessary. I mean, we did talk about how the band chose to continue playing as the ship sank, and to me, though, that makes sense because it was a way to sacrifice and to calm the passengers or to give them at least some sense of peace, but... I mean, why keep the gym open? I can't imagine anybody was thinking like, I think I'll just get in a few more reps before whatever happens here happens.
2: (laughs) Yeah, probably not. But if anyone was trying to burn like a few calories for the road... I really wouldn't blame them. I I mean, the meals on board the Titanic were pretty epic, at least for the first-class passengers. And so the dinners were gourmet affairs with up to 13 courses, each of which came with its own paired wine. There was also a pre-dinner cocktail service that was added as a concession to American passengers. Apparently, European passengers weren't fans of this idea because they thought mixed drinks ruined your palate before eating. But from start to finish, these elaborate meals could last as long as four or five hours— And because a first-class menu was actually later recovered, we actually know exactly what the wealthiest Titanic passengers had for dinner the night the ship went down. And it was an incredible spread. The feast started with raw oysters and a selection of hors d'oeuvres, followed by a choice of two soups. Then came a lightly poached Atlantic salmon topped with a rich mousse. For the fourth and fifth courses, passengers (laughs) chose from such rich entrees as a filet mignon or a lamb with mint sauce. And then... At the halfway point of the meal, this the is only halfway, halfway point. through the meal, Wow! <laughs> you get a palate cleanser. It's, it's a, a punch romaine, which I guess is a, a boozy mix of wine, rum, and champagne. And then once you've regained your appetite, the feasting resumes. There's a roast squab course, cold asparagus vinaigrette, foie gras, and then there's dessert, which includes peaches and chartreuse jelly, chocolate, vanilla eclairs, French ice cream. And then to close off the meal, there's a variety of fruits, nuts, and cheeses, With coffee, port, cigars, and cordials. It's pretty incredible.
1: It feels like they just accidentally went ahead and cooked everything for the week for one (laughs) meal. I don't even know how these people would get up and walk after eating all of this stuff. I don't feel like I could make it through a single meal.
2: I know. But if you did want to try, there are actually places all over the world that now offer dinners that recreate that last meal that the first class passengers ate on the ship. and. It's kind of macabre, but some people claim it's a great way to humanize the tragedy or better understand the history of it. The ethics aside, like the biggest drawback is probably the price of these dinners. So, for instance, there's uh, one restaurant in Houston. It offers a 10-course menu for $1,000 per person. There's also a version of this on a luxury hotel in Hong Kong where um, the price is doubled because it reportedly serves this vintage 1907 bottle of wine that's actually salvaged from the wreck of the Titanic.
1: I like this idea that it somehow humanizes the tragedy by just sitting there and stuffing yourself <laughs> with all of this.
2: And drinking fancy old wine. Don't forget yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> well, I guess so.
1: I guess they know exactly what it was like to be on the Titanic then. But that it, <laughs> it feels a little too rich for my blood. I, I feel like maybe I'd spring for a recreation of maybe like the third class dinner. though. I mean, that's <laughs> got to be a lot cheaper, right? Like I imagine they were a bit more down to earth at the second and third class tables, right?
2: So I think that's a really funny idea, but not as much as you think, right? Like, so the first and second class dining rooms actually shared a galley. So there was probably a good bit of crossover when it comes to what was served, kind of like business of first class on a plane or something. But the main difference would have been that second-class diners wouldn't have had all the crazy wine pairings, a few of the other frills that the first-class people enjoyed. And honestly, even third-class passengers didn't have it too bad when it came to food. So there was a lot less lamb with mint sauce and a lot more roast beef and boiled potatoes. But you actually wouldn't hear that many people complaining about it. At the time, most ocean liners required third-class passengers to bring their own food to last the entire voyage which would have made the Titanic's prepared meals seem really decadent to most people. I mean, the same can't be said for the accommodations, though. There were actually only two bathtubs for all 700 third-class passengers to share. Oh,
1: gosh. Uh, well, let's let, maybe let's not dwell on that. But <laughs> getting back to the food, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around the amount of work that must have gone into feeding this many people and multiple times a day. Like, mm-hmm. there were 2,200 people aboard the Titanic. You've got... 1,300 passengers, 900 crew members. So, you know, just doing the math, like three meals a day, that's 6,600 meals that the kitchens had to crank out every 24 hours. It must have been a pretty colossal effort.
2: It definitely was. So I read this interview with Dana McCauley. She co-wrote a book called Last Dinner on the Titanic. And she says the Titanic's kitchen crew included 113 cooks, 15 first cooks who supervised things, 12 pastry chefs, six bakers, five butchers, and five sous chefs. And, you know, you think about that, that's not even mentioning the dozens of waiters or busboys that each meal required.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty huge staff. But I'm actually a bit surprised it's not even bigger when you consider how many people they were feeding and just the level of sheer variety on those menus that you talked about. Mm -hmm. But... Since you mentioned the Titanic's bakers, I want to take a second and talk about the ship's chief baker. He was a guy named Charles Joffin, and he was a survivor of the wreck and lived for decades afterward, but he was also examined as part of a British inquiry after the accident. And the picture he paints during his testimony is really pretty amazing. So after the Titanic hits the iceberg, sorry for the spoiler there, but (laughs) Charles immediately gets to work, and he starts rounding up all the bread he can find to help bolster the provisions and all the lifeboats. Now, he ends up sending something like 40 pounds of bread loaves to the upper decks, and then he heads back to his cabin, where he proceeds to steal himself with what he called, quote, a drop of liqueur. And I have a feeling it was a little more than a drop, and honestly, in that situation, who can blame him? But... Then Charles heads to the A deck, and he starts helping to load the lifeboats. Now, this is something I hadn't heard before, but apparently many of the passengers were reluctant to leave the ship. Like, in the first hour or so after the collision, when only the lower decks were flooding at that point, a lot of the people tried to wave off the danger and actually refused to get on these lifeboats. So Charles knew better in this situation. And so when he found women and children just squatting on the deck, refusing to budge, He and other crew members began picking up these stubborn passengers and actually throwing them into the lifeboats. Wow. And then when these last lifeboats were filled and lowered, Charles went back down to his cabin, had himself another drop of liqueur, and went right back on the deck. Now, at this point, the ship was sinking in earnest, and it was clear that the majority of the passengers were still on board so he was helpful to the very last minute, and he tossed some 50-odd deck chairs into the water so that people would have something to cling on to when the ship inevitably went under.
2: That that really is inspiring. Also, can I just say how perfect an activity he chose given his circumstances? Like, chucking deck chairs into the ocean is exactly the thing you should do if you're trapped on a sinking ship and you've had a few drinks. No, it does
1: seem pretty fitting in that scenario, (laughs) but here's where Charles really achieves legend status in my eyes. Like he was actually still aboard the Titanic when it split in half. In fact, he reportedly climbed over the railing, rode the ship down as it sank. And when asked during his inquiry, if he had been dragged under with the ship, Charles just replied, I do not believe my head went underwater at all. It may have been wetted, but no more. (laughs) Okay. So this guy's my new hero. Well, and that's really saying something because there are a ton of stories about passengers behaving bravely while the ship went down. And, of course, these days a lot of people say chivalry is dead, but that definitely wasn't the case aboard the Titanic.
2: Yeah, that's true. I I think most people know the famous policy about evacuating women and children first. And that really was an explicit order that Captain Smith gave the night the Titanic sank. But what I never knew before this week is that Titanic actually proved the exception in that regard rather than the rule. Because it turns out that in most maritime disasters, men have had a significantly higher survival rate than women and children.
1: Really? I I don't think I would have guessed that. But All right, well, I have a ton of questions to ask. And at some point, we do need to talk about the crash itself. But before we get to any of that, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the enduring legacy of the RMS Titanic. All right, Mango, so before the break, you were saying that when disaster strikes at sea, that men generally fare better
2: than women and children. So can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So this comes from this Swedish study where researchers looked at 18 maritime disasters that happened between 1852 and 2011. And what they found was that women and children survived in greater numbers than men in only two of the 18 cases. It was for the HMS Birkenstock in 1852 and the Titanic in 1912. In all other cases, men came out ahead with an average survival rate of 37% compared to 27% for women and just 15% for children. And that wasn't the only surprise to come out of the study either because it turns out the crew members actually have the highest survival rate they come out with a whopping 61%. And you know this romantic idea of captains choosing to go down with the ships, right? That apparently doesn't happen as often as we assume because even captains tend to have a higher survival rate than passengers.
1: But you're saying that wasn't the case the night the Titanic sank? Exactly.
2: So with Titanic, women actually had a 75% survival rate compared to just 17% for men. And it's the same with children. Half the kids aboard the Titanic survived the ordeal. All right. So do we know
1: why that is? Like what made the Titanic so different? Was its crew just like that much better at following the correct procedure or or what happened there?
2: That's the thing. The whole women and children first wasn't explicit and it wasn't this like written rule at the time. In fact, as we see with those other 16 cases, the real policy is closer to first come first serve or even every man for himself. But That's one way in which Birkenstock and Titanic stick out from the others, because in both those cases, the captains gave this direct order that women and children should be evacuated first. So if that's the case, then the higher
1: survival rates for women and children is really thanks more to the captains and crew, like not necessarily the passengers of the Titanic being chivalrous. It was really more the captain.
2: So that is one way to look at it. But on the other hand, we do have plenty of reports of crew members and even passengers who chose to remain on board and help others rather than take up space in the lifeboats. I mean, supposedly there were just people on deck, just standing and smoking cigars, drinking brandy while others fled for their lives. And while that might sound kind of silly or naive to us, I think those guys absolutely knew what they were doing. They were willing to die in order to give other people a shot at living.
1: All right. So then what do we make of this? Like, are we saying the passengers of Titanic and and I guess Birkenstock just happen to be more selfless than, you know, people in these other shipwrecks? I mean, I feel like there's got to be more to it than that.
2: I read this study from an Australian economist. His name's uh, David Savage. And he actually suggested that Titanic's passengers behaved more altruistically simply because they had the time to do so. Like, If you think about the wreck of the Lusitania, which was this other luxury liner from the era, which I'm sure you've heard of, it had a similar number of passengers and survivors to the Titanic. But whereas the Lusitania sank in less than 20 minutes, Titanic took nearly three hours. And that's why Savage suggests that the longer timeline allowed social norms to assert themselves aboard the Titanic. So instead of giving in to the panicked self-interest as passengers aboard the Lusitania and most of the other ships did— the people aboard the Titanic had enough time to tamp down their self-preservation instincts and really act in favor of the group instead. And, you know, I have to wonder if that in itself is one of the reasons that people are still so affected by the Titanic story today. Like, if you think about it, this was one of those rare tragedies where the people involved actually had the time to think about their circumstances and how they wanted to spend their final moments. And that's not really a luxury that many have had in major disasters in the last century.
1: Well, and and think about how much worse things could have gone if the passengers didn't have that extra bit of time. I mean, as it stands, there were only about 700 survivors from Titanic, which means roughly 1,500 people lost their lives that night. And if there had been mass panic, it's likely that even more people would have died in the process.
2: Yeah, though I I do question how much better things really could have been, like— At the end of the day, the ship just didn't have anywhere near the number of lifeboats it would have technically taken to save everyone on board, and that's with the ship at half capacity. Like, the Titanic technically could have fit another 1,100 people on board, which undoubtedly would have made it an even bigger tragedy.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, people often point to those lack of lifeboats aboard the Titanic as another example of the hubris of the ship's owners and creators and... You know, to a certain extent, that makes sense. Like, one of the stories I hear a lot is how the ship could have easily carried twice the amount of lifeboats that it had. Only the designers didn't want to ruin the aesthetics by cluttering the deck (laughs) with more boats. I mean, it's just absurd. And while that may be true, it's worth noting that Titanic was completely up to code when it came to lifeboats. In fact it was actually more compliant than it even had to be. Because instead of having 16 lifeboats as the board of trade required, the ship actually had 20.
2: I mean, that sounds ridiculous. Like like a ship as big as the Titanic was only required to have 16 lifeboats. How is that even possible? Like, didn't they know how many people were going to be on board?
1: Well, they did. But
2: the thing is, like the number of passengers wasn't
1: actually a factor in determining this. So prior to Titanic, the number of lifeboats needed was based solely on a ship's weight. So whether the ship the size of the Titanic was sailing half full or completely empty, it would have still been required to carry just 16 lifeboats. Now, the good news is that Titanic shined a light on how little sense this made in practice. And so thanks to that public scrutiny and Senate inquiries that took place in the days after the disaster, regulations definitely changed. And The number of lifeboats started to be determined by the number of people on board, not by how much a ship weighed, which just seems weird that we even have to say that because who else would be getting on these lifeboats other than the people (laughs) on the ship? (laughs)
2: <laughs> Definitely a smart change. And, you know, there were actually a couple other positive things to come out of the Titanic tragedy. For example, maritime agencies began using round-the-clock wireless monitoring to keep track of ships and to make sure that few distress calls were missed. And that's something that made a huge difference during World War One, when large ships were frequent targets for enemy torpedoes. In fact, the ship that rescued the Titanic, I, I think it was called the Carpathia, It was sunk six years later by a torpedo fired from a German U-boat. But thanks to the lessons from Titanic, the Carpathia had plenty of lifeboats and a direct line to call for help. And as a result of this preparedness, not a single crew member or passenger drowned that day.
1: That's pretty amazing. And, you know,
2: actually, we've neglected
1: to mention what's probably my favorite advancement to come out of Titanic, and that's the creation of what's called the International Ice Patrol. Now, this was established the very next year after the Titanic sank, and the organization has spent the last hundred plus years just patrolling the North Atlantic and tracking the movement of icebergs. And so, you know, the way that it worked in the early days is that a patrol ship would just head out into the open ocean, find the southernmost iceberg, and then just kind of keep an eye on it for the rest of the season. And so, it would follow the iceberg wherever it went and then just report those movements so that the other boats would know how to steer clear.
2: Which is awesome. And and you said this is something that still goes on today?
1: Yeah, the patrol is actually part of the U.S. Coast Guard now. And so these days they mostly do their scouting by plane, but satellites are also a factor now. And of course, sometimes the team will still take a ship out and babysit the icebergs, really kind of the old-fashioned way.
2: Well, I, I know we also wanted to talk about some of the impact that Titanic's had on culture, both in the U.S. and abroad. But before we do that, let's take one more quick break. Okay, well, so let's talk about the first time Titanic fever gripped society, which, of course, was back when news of the ship sinking first broke. And the guy who actually got the scoop was this journalist named Carlos Hurd, who happened to be in just the right place at just the right time. Wait, don't tell me he was actually a passenger on the Titanic, was he? No, but super close. He, he was actually one of the original passengers on board the Carpathia before it was rerouted to aid in the rescue operation. So during the four-day trip to New York, Carlos was able to interview many of the Titanic survivors and then turn those accounts into a 5,000-word story.
1: So is it true like the public didn't know anything about the disaster until his story came out?
2: Well, where did the collision reach the mainland thanks to wireless messages sent from both the Titanic and the Carpathia? But these communications were short on details, and they came nowhere close to capturing the full scope of the tragedy. And while there was plenty of time to fill people in during the voyage to New York, like, the captain of the Carpathia actually banned everyone on board from sharing any information with the media, aside from a list of which passengers had survived and which had perished. And and so did people honor his wishes? Definitely not. Because when the Carpathia finally arrived at port, it was immediately surrounded by small boats that had been chartered by overeager news companies. According to the Smithsonian, quote, reporters shouted through megaphones on their tugboats, offered terrific sums of money for information exclusives. But Captain Rostran said he would shoot any pressman who dared ventured aboard his ship. All right. Well, so then how
1: did Carlos Herd get his story out? Because I mean, I have to imagine he and others were stuck on the boat
2: for a while once they got to New York, and especially if they were so besieged by the press. That is true, which is why Carlos had to get creative if he was going to crack one of the biggest stories of the decade. And this is incredible. So, you know, he sent the secret wireless message to a friend at a New York newspaper telling him to charter a tugboat. And then the guy sailed to the Carpathia that evening, then behind the captain's back Carlos stuffed his story into a waterproof bag and discreetly tossed it onto this waiting boat. And later that very night, the New York Evening World published his story. It was the first to include accurate details about what had happened.
1: Yeah, and it's wild to look back and see just how fast the story spread and kind of took root in people's minds after that. And all in the days before television, or really even the radio craze for that matter. And for instance, I was reading how manufacturers rushed to produce Titanic merchandise in the days following the crash. So in a matter of weeks, the market was flooded with all sorts of commemorative products from postcards and dinner plates to music boxes, whiskey jiggers. I was even reading about this German toy company called Stief that released a limited edition Titanic teddy bear shortly after the ship sank. And it's really weird. Like, it was actually Uh, called the Mourning Bear because it was made to look like it was grieving the victims. Like, it had all black fur and these red-rimmed eyes to make it look like the bear had been crying. I mean, it's just (laughs) gross, to be honest with you. And apparently the idea had come from a report about the Titanic senior engineer, William Moves, who went down with the ship. And supposedly he had a Steve teddy bear on board with him, so the company decided to release a memorial bear in his honor. And The craziest part is that today the Steve Morning Bears typically go for upwards of 20 grand a piece at auction.
2: That is insane. So, one of the biggest surprises in preparing for today's episode was really that, like seeing just how quickly people began to capitalize on Titanic. And I think one of the best examples of that is the fact that exactly one month after the ship went down, the very first movie about Titanic premiered in theaters.
1: Wait, did you say one month after? Mm -hmm. Like, I I obviously knew the 1997 movie wasn't the first to tackle the subject, but I mean, I can't see any way that something could have come out that quickly one month after such a real-life tragedy.
2: Yeah, and you haven't even heard the wildest part yet, because this movie, which was called Saved from the Titanic, actually starred a young silent film actress named Dorothy Gibson, and Dorothy and her mother were both survivors of the real Titanic. I mean, can you even imagine like living through a nightmare like that and then reenacting the whole thing just two weeks later?
1: I mean, I can't imagine that, nor would I want to. But what on earth made her want to do this?
2: So, Dorothy apparently did not want to do the movie at all. But she got talked into it by her producer-slash-boyfriend, who is... I guess this unscrupulous Hollywood mogul type, like his name was Jules Brulator. He had put together this newsreel on the Titanic that proved to be this huge hit. So he figured that a dramatization of the event starring an actual survivor would make a great next act. And so with the help of a $1,000 engagement ring, he made his pitch to Dorothy and she ultimately agreed to make this one real film about her experience. But as you can imagine, it was not easy for the sake of realism, she chose to wear the same evening dress, coat, and shoes that she'd worn the night Titanic sank. Wow. And Dorothy reportedly burst into tears multiple times during the shooting. And once the film had wrapped, she walked away from the movie business for good. She stated simply that she felt, quote, dissatisfied.
1: I mean, I can't blame her for wanting to get away from an industry that would push her into reliving a trauma like that. But, yeah. Uh, honestly, though, I mean, I have to admit, I would be curious to see the movie.
2: And the truth is, you're not the only one. So save from the Titanic is actually one of the holy grails for silent movie buffs. And that's because two years after it was made, this massive fire broke out at the studio and all the known prints were destroyed. So nobody's seen the movie since its original run in theaters over 100 years ago. And as much as I wish the film could have been preserved for posterity, it's kind of poetic that no one can make or reenact that experience ever again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a certain kind of justice in that, but I mean, what I find ironic is that there are plenty of people today who will go to great lengths and and great expense to sort of relive the experience of the Titanic. I mean, you mentioned earlier how people pay big money to recreate the ship's lavish meals, and there are also companies that offer $100,000 submarine voyages to see the actual Titanic wreckage in all its glory. And I actually, I read about an American couple that even got married and a tiny sub docked on the bow of the tiny shipwreck.
2: (laughs) So I'm sure that made for some pretty amazing wedding pictures, but it does seem a little disrespectful to me, right? Like, it's effectively this mass grave. Well, I mean, you're not the only one to point
1: that out. And in fact, listen to what the company that put on the undersea wedding said in its defense. It said, um, what's got to be remembered is that every time a couple gets married in church, they have to walk through a graveyard to get to the altar.
2: Yeah, I mean, plenty of people get married in churches that have on-site cemeteries, but in those cases, the graveyard isn't the selling point like it is with the Titanic.
1: Well, I I think the Titanic tourism stuff probably comes from that same place as as those just-missed-it stories we talked about at the top of the show, and that kind of weird desire that people feel to tie themselves to someone else's tragedy, but, I mean, in this case, I feel like it goes a little too far.
2: Which sounds right. But I I pretty much signed with uh, Robert Ballard, who is the oceanographer who first discovered the Titanic wreckage back in 85, and he refused to divulge the ship's exact location for fear that treasure hunters and corporations would swoop in to exploit it. And it's an act that Ballard actually saw as tantamount to grave robbing. Of course, the coordinates eventually leaked anyway, and now more than 140 people have visited the shipwreck off the coast of Newfoundland. Altogether, though, these visitors have extracted some 5,000 artifacts and done untold damage to the ship itself in the process. It's always a
1: little unsettling to see the final resting place of so many people picked apart like that. But actually, I read somewhere that the Titanic's under UNESCO protection now, though, isn't it?
2: Yeah, ever since the 100th anniversary of the wreck, I believe. So then it's considered like this
1: underwater cultural heritage site or, or something like that. And so any kind of excavation would actually be off limits at this point.
2: Yeah, that's true. And legal protections, even ones that are a few decades too late, are a nice deterrent to these would-be pirates and scavengers. But the reality is that Titanic won't be around much longer, no matter what we do. And that's because about a decade ago, scientists discovered a new species of bacteria that's been slowly devouring the ship's iron hull. Not only that, but as the microbes munch away, they form these icicle-like communities called rusticles. And this happens all over the ship, inside and out. And as the rusticles get heavier and heavier, they start to pull the ship apart piece by piece. Meanwhile, the mollusks have made short work of the wood from Titanic. And, of course, any human remains were consumed by marine life long ago. So at this point, most researchers think it's just another decade or two until the ship is gone forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, that'll really be the end of an era. But, of course, with all the biographies and movies and teddy bears and themed dinners. I mean, I think we'll always have plenty to remember the Titanic and its passengers by.
2: Absolutely. And speaking of remembrances, Robert Ballard gave a really touching one shortly after he found the shipwreck. And it kind of works as a eulogy for the ship and for the event as a whole. So I thought it might be a nice way to close out the show. Do you mind if I read it and then we can go straight to the fact off? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so this is what Ballard said. Quote, The Titanic lies now in 13,000 feet of water on a gently sloping alpine-looking countryside overlooking a small canyon below. Its bow faces north. The ship sits upright on its bottom with its mighty stacks pointed upward. There is no light at this great depth and little life can be found. It is a quiet and peaceful place and a fitting place for the remains of this greatest of sea tragedies to rest. Forever may it remain that way and may God bless these now found souls
1: so one of the weirder things to read about is all the ways people plan to try to bring the titanic back up to the surface and some of the weird ones that i just jotted down here are uh, one was filling polyester bags with vaseline and the idea here is that vaseline would harden then become buoyant and that that would somehow lift the titanic (laughs) Another was, filling the whole of the ship with thousands of ping pong balls. Uh, and then another one is, encase the ship in ice, which would basically be the equivalent of creating a big ice cube in a drink. And that we all know what happens with ice cubes in a drink. They, they float. So, these were all brilliant ideas, but somehow
2: none of these ideas came to life. <laughs> So back in 1886, the writer William T. Stead wrote a fictional piece about a mail steamer wrecking and then most of its passengers dying because there weren't enough lifeboats. And in the story, he pointed out the fact that the really lax regulations didn't require ships to have enough lifeboats for every person on the ship. Just a few years later, Stead came back to his theme and wrote about a ship crashing into ice. And then we fast forward a couple decades, and one of the passengers who died in the Titanic tragedy was none other than Steed. And he did so because there weren't enough lifeboats on board.
1: Wow. Well, we talked about this before, about how um, anytime there's a disaster like this, lots of people claim that they were almost a part of it. But there's actually one famous person that has pretty good proof of this. It turns out that Milton Snavely Hershey, you know, the man behind the legendary chocolate brand, things like Hershey's Kisses, Hershey's Chocolate Bars. Do you need me to give more examples, Mango? Are you familiar (laughs) with Hershey? Yeah. Well, anyway, he was scheduled to be on the ship. So if you head to Hershey, Pennsylvania and visit the community archives there, you can see a $300 check that Hershey had written to the White Star Line, and it's believed to be a deposit toward a stateroom. But it turns out that he had more urgent business back in the States, and so Hershey and his wife took an earlier ship, the America, which strangely was one of the many ships that sent back warnings to the Titanic. Hmm.
2: You know the iconic scene in the movie Titanic where Rose is lying on the driftwood and staring up at the sky, right? So Neil deGrasse Tyson apparently saw the scene and decided to send a note to James Cameron to point out that the star Rose was looking up at wouldn't have actually been the one she would have seen at that real place in time. The only issue is that Tyson didn't see this movie until about a decade after its initial release. But Cameron is such a perfectionist that he decided to reshoot the scene in preparation for the release of the 3D edition.
1: So more than a decade later, that's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. And also pretty impressive that we made it near the end of the fact-off before we really did a fact about the movie. Yeah, Not bad. pretty impressive. All right, well, we all know that the Titanic sunk after colliding with an iceberg, but some believe that there was a massive coal fire in the bunker of the ship that actually caused significant structural weakening of the outside of the ship. Now, journalist Sinan Maloney has been researching this subject for decades now, and he points to these photographs of the Titanic right before its final trip, and the photos show this huge black mark on the hull of the ship, which is, of course, where the ship would later hit the iceberg. Now, Maloney also believes that the owners of the Titanic were well aware of this damage, but not wanting to delay a trip, which would, of course, cost them a bunch of money, they decided to just ignore it. Now, I should note that many engineers looking at the situation have said it's difficult to tell how much that prior damage really contributed to the disaster— It may have all happened anyway, but it's still pretty interesting to look at this theory.
2: I mean, it is crazy that there are conspiracy theories about the Titanic, it's pretty fascinating. So there's a restaurant near Halifax Harbor, it's this seafood place called Five Fisherman Restaurant, and it's supposedly a fantastic restaurant, but it's got a strange claim to fame. It was actually an old mortuary, the city's oldest, in fact. It was called Snow and Company Undertakers, and it received the bodies of not just one, but two major tragedies in the early 1900s. It turns out that Halifax was the base of many of the rescue operations, and many of the bodies from the Titanic disaster were brought to Snow's funeral home. And then five years later, when the Halifax explosion took place, it was the largest human-made explosion in history at the time, many of the bodies were once again brought to Snow and Company.
1: Wow, such a weird coincidence and you said it's a seafood place now
2: it is and well uh, well i do like that fact I, I think your ping pong ball ice cube fact lifting the titanic is is probably the happiest one of the slots uh, i i think you deserve the prize this week thanks so much and
1: hopefully one day they will try all of those at one time and it'll be <laughs> just great rising of the ship but um You know, it's been interesting to dive into this one. I know there are facts out there that we certainly left out. We always love hearing those from you. You can email us those anytime, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com, or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But from Gabe, Tristan, Mango, and me, thanks so much for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
2: Kristen McNeil does the editing thing.
1: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy mixy sound thing.
2: <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing.
1: Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams.
2: And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your
1: ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us.
2: Did we? Did we forget Jason? Jason who?